The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice. Contains God's plan for the family. Also has the truth about life and death. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. We're glad you joined us today. We're going to be studying the Bible for the next 30 minutes. And if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the Bible, uh, this is the program for you. That's all we do on this program. We don't take time out for uh, commercials or adding, uh, asking for money or any of that. We just answer as many questions as we can. And we get those questions from you. So uh, if you've got a question for us, uh, we're happy to hear it and get it in a stack of questions and get to it as quick as we can. There's a phone number and a website on the bottom of the screen. Use those anytime to get in touch with us. Uh, tell us what's on your mind, maybe something that you've always wondered about, uh, maybe what a verse means or a doctrine that's in the Bible or maybe isn't in the Bible. Uh, just ask, is that really in the Bible? And we'll try to find you a biblical answer. So that's what we do. Uh, stay tuned, and hopefully you'll learn a little bit about the Bible. I'm Steve Tandy, and i got two friends here that help answer questions. Jeff Martin down there. Morning, Jeff. Morning, Steve. Toby Levering in the middle. Hi, Steve. Toby's here, and we're ready to go. So let's uh, get started, and you get to start the program. Here's your viewer question of the day. Uh, which one doesn't belong? Joseph was in prison uh, with a couple of royal employees. Now, which one was not there? A butler, a tailor, or a baker? Uh, two of those were with Joseph and one wasn't. And we'll give you the answer at the end of the program. Uh, see if you know that little bit of Bible trivia. All right, Jeff, I think gets to go first today. So get All us right. going. A viewer that has a, a question about a perceived contradiction in the Bible. It says, Revelation 11.8 says Christ was crucified in Sodom. I thought it was in Jerusalem. Uh, so let's look at that verse first and let's see uh, in context what this verse is trying to say. This is Revelation 11:8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Uh, so we know historically that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. So you might have a lot of people who say, okay, I I've got you. Look, the Bible contradicts itself. Uh, why would the Bible say Sodom and Egypt in this verse in Revelation? And the key to answering this particular question in context is actually within the verse itself, and that's the word symbolically. Uh, it says the city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. The NIV actually says figuratively. So here we have symbolically and figuratively. Uh, obviously, we know this, Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem are different places. But if you look in context at the whole book of Revelation, you see that it's a book of symbols. And specifically, Sodom is a symbol of sin and moral corruption. If you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can see this. And Egypt is a symbol of bondage and slavery. This is where the Israelites were enslaved for so many years. So if you look at sin, moral corruption, bondage and slavery, these are all things that we were freed from uh, when Jesus was crucified. So because this is in the book of Revelation, a book uh, heavy in symbols, these cities are symbols. They're not recording the literal place of the crucifixion, which we know to be outside of Jerusalem. 
Okay, thank you, Jeff. Um, Old Testament question again. A viewer wants to know about when Israel wanted a king. Why didn't God want them to have one? Well, you read Old Testament history and you find there was a time when Israel demanded a king. Uh, they wanted to be like the nations around them, the Bible says. And God warned them. He said, you're not going to like it. <laughs> There's going to be troubles if you pick an earthly king. Uh, you're going to, your taxes are going to go up and you're going to get young men sent off to war and all sorts of things are going to happen. Uh, so he did warn them against it. And our viewer wants to know, well, why didn't he want them to have a king? And I love this kind of question because the Bible answers it directly. In fact, God himself said, here's the reason uh, that it wasn't good for them to have a king. The story is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's just read it. Uh, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Uh, so that's the principle of the thing. God was the king of Israel in a sense. He, it was a theocracy. Uh, he ruled over Israel and protected them and cared for them, uh, blessed them, kept them safe, and all of that. And the people said, we want an earthly king. And God said, the problem with that is they've rejected me. Uh, they don't trust me to run things anymore. They want an earthly king to run things. They want to look at everybody around them and be like them. Uh, so, pretty simple answer, but there's some pretty good lessons in there, too. Uh, sometimes we want things that aren't good for us, and God allows that to happen sometimes. Uh, so, the other lesson is that Maybe we ought to trust God a lot more than we trust our earthly leaders. So that's the reason is they were rejecting God. All right. Next question is about elders. A uh, viewer asks uh, or says, the Bible says Paul appointed elders. Does that mean the preacher alone selects them? Uh, my answer to that is it depends on the congregation. Uh, the Bible says a lot about elders as far as their character, their work, uh, their role within the church. But there's really only two passages that address the idea of or the subject of appointing elders. Uh, one is a command, another is an example. Uh, let's look at those. First, Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, <clears throat> When they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. So hold that for a second. Uh, the context here is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey uh, through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. The Bible says that they were uh, that they appointed elders in every church, which makes sense. These were probably new Christians, and there probably weren't existing elders, and they they were Paul and Barnabas positions of author apostolic authority, and they wanted to make sure that these churches had leadership uh, to govern the local congregation. Uh, second scripture is found in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul, writing to Titus, says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we'll leave that up. The context here is Paul instructing Titus, who's the preacher, uh, to appoint, to raise up elders in each city according to what they had been taught. And probably um, much of the information that we get about elders in First Timothy is this the criterion that he would have used for that. So there's really no other passages about appointing elders and how that's done. So based on what we have, there are some conclusions that we can draw when it comes to appointing elders. Uh, first, appointing elders is not a democracy. It's not a matter of vote or po by popular majority. Uh, it, it's something that those in leadership uh, do. They understand the congregation. They understand the qualities of the men being considered. And they uh, do their best to choose men prayerfully who will lead the congregation in the right way. People who are worthy of respect and trust because elders uh, have to make hard decisions sometimes. Uh, elders are appointed uh, or raised up by the existing leadership. Uh, in most cases, I would say if it's a congregation that has elders, those elders can coordinate that process. The, the Bible never says exactly for a congregation having elders how we go about that. So it's left up to each congregation to figure out the way that they go about that. But if for a congregation that has no elders, uh, the most logical, reasonable choice would be uh, the minister or the preacher, uh, and it's mainly just someone who knows the congregation, number one, and number two, knows what the word says and uh, looks for men who adhere to the qualities of elders described. And that's the key point, I think. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, no, not in all cases does the preacher alone, but if in some cases, yes, where the congregation maybe has had not have elders or does not currently have elders, uh, it's very natural for the preacher <coughs> to do that. So I hope that helps you. All right. Let's talk about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, one way is to tune in here each week, and we'll answer seven or eight questions, and you'll learn a little bit of Bible, hopefully. Uh, another way is to sit down with your Bible and study in your home, and you'll learn a whole lot of Bible if you do that. Uh, but we know that's sometimes hard to get a habit started. It's hard to uh, break in. You don't know exactly how to study the Bible. Uh, so we've got some study tools that uh, we've found very helpful in helping people getting to know their Bible. Uh, here's a set of eight lessons. It's the first set that we have. And it's just a good introduction. You can see it starts with the Old Testament and the New Testament over there on the left. Uh, those are the first two lessons help you understand the two big divisions of your Bible. Once you get through that, we've got some advanced courses that uh, a little more detail, go into specific topics, the life of Jesus, the book of Acts, and other good topics. Uh, we pay the postage both ways, uh, absolutely free of charge if you want these mail-in courses. But some people like online things, so we've got that too. Uh, log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org. Write that down, and uh, as soon as you get done watching the program here, log on and give them a little bit of information, and you'll be signed up and start getting online Bible courses that a uh, very helpful, great way to study the Bible. So we got a lot of options for you. Use the phone number and the website on the screen if you want to. Uh, request that mail-in course or log on and get the online courses and uh, learn your Bible with Know Your Bible Study Tools. 
Jeff, a little purgatory question yep. here. We get this question from time to time. A viewer wants to know, what is purgatory and is it found in the Bible? So first of all, I'll start by saying the word purgatory is found nowhere in the Bible. Uh, in fact, I take it a step further and say the concept of purgatory, which uh, we'll talk about, is also found nowhere in the Bible. Uh, it comes from a single verse and the doctrine relating to, to this has been expounded upon and added to from this single verse. And it won't be on your screen, uh, but the verse used for purgatory is 1 Corinthians 3.15, which says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's supposedly a fire that we can be purified of or purified through uh, after death. If you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which they, which they use alongside their Bible, uh, it defines purgatory as a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but are still imperfectly purified. Now, if you listen to that last phrase, and you have read the gospel, just the simple gospel, you know that there is a massive problem with that doctrine, biblically speaking. Uh, according to the Bible, if you die in God's grace, then God's grace is entirely sufficient to make you pure. God's grace came from God's sacrifice. That sacrifice contained everything we needed uh, to be pure and nothing else. So when we add a step to that purification process, uh, past the cleansing blood of Christ, we're, we're basically adding to the gospel, which is a problem. Uh, and if you go back to that verse in 1 Corinthians, it's not saying we're being cleansed by the fire. It's saying because of Christ, we're able to escape from the fire. Uh, so when a human being dies, there are basically two places, biblically speaking, that they're going to go. If they are in Christ and have been washed by His blood, then they're going to go to paradise, to heaven. Uh, and if they are still in their sin and have not put Christ on, then they are going to go to hell. Now, I can see where it'd be very convenient for something to exist in between those two places that could possibly save you, uh, but, but we do not see any of that in the Bible. So, uh, no, purgatory is not found in, in the Bible. All right, then. Um, see if this one's found in the Bible. Viewer wants to know if someone is accepted Jesus at an early age, uh, how do they know they were saved? All right, we maybe should have tied this to a question we had last week about uh, what we call the age of accountability. Uh, we talked about that at some length, uh, that people become Christians uh, when they understand what God has commanded and understand sin and all of that, and that happens at different ages. Well, there's no hard rule, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, you're ready to be a Christian at 10, 15, 20. It doesn't say anything about that. So we all mature differently and are accountable at different times. Uh, one thing, let me clear up before we get to answering the question. Uh, our viewer phrased this, if someone accepted Jesus at a young age. Uh, accepted Jesus is not in the Bible. Uh, that term's not used. Uh, that concept's not used any time in the Bible we find somebody uh, becoming a Christian, <clears throat> a sinner who understands Jesus, repents, confesses, and all that, uh, and becomes a Christian. That happens at 
baptism. Uh, all the cases we read about says uh, they believed, they, they repented, they confessed, they were baptized, then they went on their way rejoicing. Uh, so the rejoicing, the becoming a Christian happens after baptism. So having clarified that, let's deal with what our viewers saying here. If you become a Christian at a real early age, uh, how do you know you were saved? And uh, I, I think that's one purpose of baptism. Uh, baptism clarifies what's going on. Uh, baptism itself is a picture of Christ's death. It's a death, a burial, a resurrection. You die to the old self, you're buried in water, you're raised up to live a new life. And Paul talks a lot about that. Uh, Romans 6, he gives that picture and he says, we were all baptized into Christ. Uh, that's how we get into Christ, that's when we get into Christ. So uh, I think baptism and the wisdom of God uh, certainly serves a purpose there. It helps us clarify what we're doing. Uh, it cements the uh, commitment in a way. Uh, if all you have to do is say, I accept Jesus, uh, you can do that in your bedroom. You can do that with no witnesses. You can uh, do that and maybe it won't mean much to you. But to commit to baptism in front of other people and all that uh, kind of cements, clarifies the commitment. So uh, I think that's a purpose of baptism. Now, having said that, uh, <clears throat> I think everybody at some point experiences some doubt about, I wonder if I understood enough about what I was doing when I became a Christian. Uh, I'm not sure I understood what I do now. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully you've grown in Jesus and you understand a whole lot more about what that commitment meant. And all that doesn't mean that commitment wasn't good. Uh, you just know more now. But I will say this from experience, the younger somebody becomes a Christian, the more doubt usually comes up. Uh, so when our viewer says at a very young age, how do they know they were saved? Well, they have to remember what they understood, what they thought. Uh, the Bible does say we can know we're saved. Read First John. Read that little book of First John. And he says right at the start, he says, I'm writing this so you can know that you're saved. And he says a lot of things in there. He says, if you love God, if you love your neighbor, if you've obeyed his commands, uh, <clears throat> if you're following Christ, walking in him, uh, all of those show you that you're really saved. So, uh, yes, we can know that as far as when the decision was made. Uh, I'd say that everybody has doubts, but the younger you are, probably the more doubts you've had. So uh, think about it if you're uncomfortable with it. Uh, talk to a minister, do something about it, uh, make a new commitment, uh, make sure that you are confident that you're saved. All right, Toby. Uh, do we have a, a oh, talk I'm, about I'm a sorry. church? Forgot. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, that's why I got you guys up here to help me. I do need to talk about Churches of Christ and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, we like to mention some of our supporters. Today, let's mention a couple in uh, central Kansas, Hutchinson, Kansas, if you live there. Uh, right across from the state fairgrounds is the Eastwood Church of Christ. Great group of folks there. 
Uh, I know that you'd be warmly welcomed in St. John, Kansas, if you live out in that, that area. Uh, also a great group of folks there that uh, support the program, and uh, we like to thank them and invite you to visit them sometime. Wherever you live, if you're looking for a church home, uh, drop into a Church of Christ, tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible, uh, and uh, you'll be warmly welcomed. Find a group of folks that study and think about the Bible a lot like we do here on Know Your Bible. All right, now let's ask right. Toby the next okay. question. <laughs> the next question has to, has to do with false prophets. What does the Bible say about pro false prophets? Very succinctly, uh, not very much that's good. <laughs> uh, nothing good about false prophets or false teachers. Uh, Jesus warned his disciples uh, about false prophets. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, which would be on the screen. He said to them, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, which tells us that false prophets typically have heart issues, uh, things, uh, ulterior motives, the, the reason that they're in uh, the position of, of teaching or prophesying falsely. So Jesus warned against that. Verse tw chapter 24, verse 11, Jesus said, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And this is the problem, of course, with false prophets, is that they do mislead people. Uh, they existed in Jesus' day, and they still exist today. Uh, the apostles warned about the danger of false prophets. There were false apostles back in the first century. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 3, uh, the apostle Paul wrote, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Uh, see, people, our hearts can mislead us, our feelings can deceive us. False prophets and teachers are people who say the things that feel good or that sound good or that please our own hearts and aren't always true to what God says or to, to God's heart. And finally, First John chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle uh, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the point is, uh, prophets, false prophets and teachers existed then, they exist today. Not everyone who calls themselves a teacher or prophet in uh, the world today is so, uh, not necessarily to be, be believed. So how do we know the difference? Very simple. Uh, we test their teachings against God's word. That's why knowing your Bible is so important. Hope that helps you. All right. Uh, I've got a viewer who has a, a question. Was Abraham the first Jew? And when I first saw this, I just wanted to say yes and move on. But it's a little <laughs> more complicated than that. I got to thinking about this historically. And um, that's an interesting question. Uh, Abraham is historically the father of God's chosen people. If you look at Genesis 12, God told Abraham that he would bless him and make him into a great nation. Uh, so at that point, Abraham was set apart and called for God's purposes. And we know in hindsight that his de descendants would eventually become the great nation of Israel. So we understand all of this now. Biblically speaking, though, no one was called a Jew until after the exile. But the Jewish people looked to Abraham as their father, as, as their original earthly father, making them God's chosen people. If you look specifically at the word Jew, it simply means from the kingdom or tribe of Judah. Uh, and the people of that kingdom and, and tribe 
consider Abraham the first of their kind. So again, to answer your question, uh, he was not called a Jew during his time, but he was the father of what would eventually become the Jewish people, more importantly, a people chosen by God. So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> okay, yeah, if you would have called Abraham a Jew, he would have said, what are you talking about? Yeah, that would have been a little weird. <laughs> I think the term came from Judah, originally shortened up that the people of Judah were in exile, and I ended up kind of shortening that up and calling them Jews. And, uh, but yeah, Abraham was kind of, but he, he wouldn't well, have known it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Question about the end of time. Viewer wants to know when Jesus comes back uh, with the sound of the archangel, what will that sound like? Uh, here's a question I guarantee you I cannot answer. <laughs> I cannot describe uh, what the archangel is going to sound like. Uh, it is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, the end of time and a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how all that's going to happen. Uh, I think it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye and nobody's going to expect it and when it happens everybody's going to know it. Uh, the best way to <coughs> uh, kind of get a feel for it I think is read one scripture that describes it in pretty good detail. So let's go to First Thessalonians. Uh, you can read some context around here and find out more about the end of time. But First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 specifically address what our viewer wants to talk about. It uh, says, For the Lord himself <clears throat> will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Let's leave that up for just a second and see there's more than one sound going on here. Uh, first it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and then you've got the voice of an archangel, and then you've got the sound of the trumpet of God. So our viewer asked about the middle one. Uh, I can't describe it, and I can't describe the others either, but let's think about them a little bit <clears throat> piece by piece. First, the Lord will descend uh, with a cry of command. Uh, what's he going to command? Well, I believe it's pretty clear he's going to command the dead uh, to come forth. Uh, in uh, John chapter 11, I think it is, uh, Jesus caused Lazarus to come forth from the grave. Uh, Jesus says there, it says there, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, and some people, when talking about that, say the reason he had to say Lazarus was because if he hadn't, uh, all the dead would have come forth. Uh, that's the power of Jesus' command, and that's what's going to happen at the end of time. Uh, the Lord is going to descend with a cry of command. And I think that command is going to be dead come forth. Uh, then the voice of the archangel, I don't know what that will sound like. Uh, the trumpet of God, I don't know what that will sound like. Uh, <clears throat> I can tell you a little bit about it. All of that together uh, will be so powerful that it will raise the dead. And it will be so frightening that it will cause sinners to ask mountains to fall upon them. Uh, to those who are in Christ, it's going to be the most wonderful sound ever. Uh, to those who are not in Christ, it's going to be the most terrifying thing 
ever. So it, it's going to be an amazing sound that day. Uh, let's make sure we get our trivia question answered before we quit today. Which royal servant was not in prison with Joseph? Uh, the butler, the tailor, or the baker? And it was a tailor who was not there. A butler and a baker were down there with Joseph. We're glad that you've been with us today, and we're going to invite you to come back next week for more questions. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.